it's nice when you can actually get a strong taste of the actual text you're going to be looking at and teaching. <laughs> Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. This is going to be the final sermon on this God of the City series. We're looking at the end. Last time we looked at the end of Babylon, the city of man, the great harlot, and its destruction. And this week we're going to look at the end or the destiny of the city of God. And here it is in Revelation 21, and we'll also be looking at 22. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of the burning sulfur. This is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and there were names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide, and he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And he measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, don't make me say that, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardinox, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, I'm not going to say that one, the eleventh, jacinth. 
<laughs> butchered that one. The 12th, I'm not going to say that, but obviously beautiful, okay? The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each made with a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, we're talking about the end, the end, which is really the beginning. What I've noticed as I've kind of put my ear to the ground and heard other Christians talk about the end is that there's a lot of confusion about what it is that Christians should be hoping for. And maybe it's just because we don't talk about it much. And when we do talk about it, it's assumed that the end is the place that we go when we die. We call this heaven. But what's heaven? Starbucks recently has put these quotes on their, on their coffee cups. And they had one from Joel Stein, who's a columnist of the LA Times, and this is what it read. Heaven is totally overrated. In fact, it seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. I mean, it should be somewhere where you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be a little better than hell. Now, you can be frustrated with this guy's opinion, but I find it interesting. And I think it's an indictment of the church that we've let the greatest message in the world be reduced to clouds and plain harps. So what comes to your mind when you think of eternity? I think there's a lot of this, what I call, left-behind thinking today. As if the final goal of God is for us to escape this bad, awful world, to escape this bad, awful body, and to leave it all behind for heaven. I don't know if you know this. But the Bible speaks very little about going to heaven after we die. Because as we learn in this text, the goal of God and his gospel is not to provide a way for people to escape this world to a place called heaven. I'm not saying that heaven isn't important, but heaven is not the end of our world. It's just an interim state for those who die 
before this end. And here's God's ultimate goal. And we see it in verse 1 of, of chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is it. It's not like we're just going to be like these soulless creatures floating around in the clouds, but God's ultimate goal, the reason for why he made this world and where this world is going is new heavens and new earth. And in verse 5 it says, God is going to make everything new. But you say, the text says, this world, this earth is passing away. I don't want us to be fooled by that because if you look at this in the context, it simply means the earth as we know it. In fact, there are two words for new in the Bible, in the Greek. There's the word naos, which means new in terms of time. It's, it's something that's young. Then there's the word kainos, which means new in terms of quality. It means to take something old and to restore it to mint condition. Kainos is the word used here. The new heavens and the new earth are a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. This is the message of the Bible. It's about a God who redeems, a God who restores, a God who resurrects. And the gospel is the message of God taking what's old, and rather than disposing of it, he makes it new. It's of God taking the filthy and making it clean. It's God taking the dead and giving it life. Ezekiel. Can these dry, dead bones live? The gospel says, yes. And this is the hope of Easter. Because Easter is not just the promise that you and I will live forever. It's the promise that my body will live forever too. That God is going to do to our bodies exactly what we see him doing to Jesus' body on Easter. And God doesn't just raise Jesus' soul. God raises Jesus' body. God is going to do the same thing for us. And what this means, I'm going to be everything I am now, minus my bad parts. All of them. <laughs> and you too. And probably a bit more glorious version. And also what the Bible teaches is God is not only going to do this for us, for those who are in Christ, but God is going to do what he does to Jesus on Easter to our whole world. Romans 8 says, all creation groans. Like my wife Libby, 24 hours in childbirth. And it was not until the 27th hour that finally Gabe came into the world. And uh, trust me, anyone who's been in that kind of a setting, that's a powerful picture. All creation groans like that. For what? It groans to be liberated 
to be set free from its bondage to decay. This is why the New Jerusalem comes down. And I hope you pick that up because it's important in verse 2. See, we're not going up. (laughs) Heaven is coming down. Because that's where it's coming from. It's coming from heaven. So if you think tonight that someday you're going to escape your body and escape this world for heaven, that's only the interim. When it's all said and done, heaven is going to come down to this world. So maybe it'd be a good time to ask this question. What's heaven? Well, biblically speaking, heaven is simply God's space. It's the dimension where God dwells. And earth, according to the Bible, is our space. It's where we live. So at creation, God made the space. And then he said to Adam and Eve, now fill it. That didn't work too well. So later in the biblical story, God does the exact opposite. He says, all right, I'll build the space, I'll build the tabernacle, then the temple, and I will fill it. And this then became the place where heaven intersected with earth, where God's space intersected with our space. So where's the temple right now? Where? We're it. And so the question becomes, are you and I making space for God? Or let me ask this question. What what was the, the, the message of Jesus? It says he went into all the towns and villages and he preached a certain sermon. Jesus had one sermon. What was it? Well, Mark's gospel is not that far uh, away. What did he preach? The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. See, and I think we think that the kingdom of heaven is the place where we're going to go when we die. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is what? It's near. Meaning, it's here. Right now. And so the kingdom is God's space breaking into our space, bringing shalom to chaos. How did Jesus teach us to pray? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, we're we're praying there, God bring your space into our space. Bring your dimension and your presence into our dimension and our presence. Let heaven come down to earth. And what happens when God's kingdom comes? I mean, we read about this in the Gospels. When the kingdom of God is unleashed, the kingdom always redeems, it always makes new, it always restores, it resurrects our space. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. 
This is the kingdom of God coming to earth. It redeems. It makes new. And you guys, I'm telling you, this is why Jesus taught us to pray right here. And that's why I'm so excited about this global day of prayer where millions of people tomorrow are going to be praying, God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Because prayer is the primary way in which we bring God's space into our space. And that's why he taught him them this prayer, your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And the awesome text that we read tonight, which is our hope, is the ultimate answer to Jesus' prayer. Now that's just kind of creating the framework. Now let's actually talk about the city. What is this city going to be like? And I'll tell you what, I'm intimidated to even try to teach it, okay? Uh, that's why I thank God for, for his, his word his text, because I could no way describe this awesome reality. First, we need to understand that the city is Eden. The tree of life is mentioned in 22, verse 2 and 14, and then that river flowing out. This is all a depiction of Eden. And the text tells us four things then about this Eden, this city. Number one is this. There's going to be no sea. You see that in verse uh, 2 of chapter 21. Now does this mean that there aren't going to be any lakes or oceans or ponds or anything like that? How are we to take this? I mean, some of you guys are like fishermen. You're thinking to yourself, wait a second. I was hoping I could fish. Well, here's my thought. Biblically speaking, the sea is a metaphor for what? The abyss. And the abyss, biblically speaking, is the home to Satan, his minions, the dragon. See, the sea is their space. That's why when Jesus drove out the legions of de demons into the pigs, where'd the pigs go? Into the sea. Luke's gospel actually says it. They went into the abyss. Or the first exodus. Where did Pharaoh's armies go? And that was more than Pharaoh's armies. There was a spiritual power that God was taking on there. Exodus 15, nine times talks about how the horse and the rider were hurled into the sea. And so in this city, there will be no more sea. There will be no more Satan. There will be no more dragon. There will be no more abyss. <laughs> you know, I don't think we have a clue how much Satan is unleashing hell upon us right now. Right in this room, right now. How he's unleashing hell upon our families, upon this community upon our children, upon our marriages. He's going for us. The Bible says he's, he roll, roams around like a roaring lion, just seeking who he may devour. 
and God's city, that will be no more. The second reality about this city, not only will there be no sea, but there no longer will be a curse. Look at 22 verse 3. We ask ourselves, what's the curse? The curse is what full-blown cancer is to a body. That's what the curse is to creation. And the curse is what entered Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And at that moment, paradise was lost. Adam and Eve had to now hide from God. Their eyes were open and their innocence was lost. And every last inch of God's good creation has now been infected with this deadly disease resulting in chaos, decay, and death. That's our world. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care um, how affluent you are. I don't care how many means you have to live pain-free life. In this world, we will suffer. But that's why Revelation 21 verse 4 talks about what it's going to mean in, this, in that final city when there is no curse. When there's no curse, there's going to be no mourning or crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And then you got this reference from Isaiah 25. God's going to personally wipe every tear from our eyes. I think Tolkien explained this best in Lord of the Rings. When Sam Wise see, sees uh, Gandalf for the first time after he comes back to life, Sam Wise is just overcome, and this is what he says. He, he asks Gandalf, he says, is everything sad that has ever happened Will it become untrue? And Gandalf just smiles and says yes. <laughs> Think about that. Everything sad that has ever happened will come untrue. I mean, some of you right now are experiencing sadness. Or think about some of those sad moments or experiences in your life. And just think about the power of the gospel in this life. How the gospel can turn everything upside down. It turns sadness and, and mourning and crying and pain and suffering and death. It just turns it on its head. And if that happens in this life, think about how much more it will happen in the next life. And Ephesians 1 verse 10 says that everything, everything, everything will be summed up in Christ. All suffering, all pain, your life, the confusing things of this world, all of history, all tragedy, it's all going to be summed up one day in Christ. In a way that I think it'll just leave us speechless. Saying, wow, you're so good. Not only will there be no sea or no curse, 
But in 21 verse 3, it says God will dwell with us. God is, God is going to be downtown on Main Street. Like this has always been God's heart. It says in the Garden of Eden that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I mean, can't you just picture God with his arms around Adam and Eve every day and saying, Adam, how, how's that garden going? Eve, how are, how are those, little, those little animals doing? How's your marriage doing? But that was lost because of Adam and Eve's sin. But ever since, throughout the biblical story, we see a God who pitches his tent. He tabernacles with his people. We see a God who temples, who makes his home in the neighborhood. We see a God who is willing to take on flesh and walk among us. And a God who eventually pitches his tent in our hearts through his spirit. This is our God. A God who just longs, longs to be among us. Who longs for his space to enter our space. This is the whole story of the Bible. And here we see in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple. And we talked about this before. The reason there's no temple is because the room in which God actually lived in the temple and the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies, the Bible describes it as a perfect cube. And now here in this text, it describes the dimensions of this city. It's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies is only 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. But this is the Bible's way of saying there's no need for a temple. Because God is the temple. And this city is a holy of holies. Where the knowledge of the glory of God fills every inch of this city. But I think the thing that's going to be most spectacular about this city. It's mind-boggling. I mean, everything I already described, I think, is going to be quite secondary to this reality. In 22 verse 4, it says, and they will see his face. You know, seeing one's face is really, it's an act of intimacy. And to hold one's face before your face is something you only do with your wife and your children. And people mean a lot to you. You remember Moses, the mountain of the Lord? <laughs> After all God had revealed to him, this special relationship he had with God, he still says, God, I want more. God, I want more of you. God, I want to I see your face. And God says to Moses, to look at my face, Moses, will kill you. I don't think we have any desire or idea of how much our heart right now longs to see God's face. More than a lover, 
longs to see the face of a long-lost loved one. And really, forgive me for, for putting it this way. But the best sex and the best marriage is only a drop in the bucket of what it will be like to see him face to face. And what will this moment be like for God? I mean, Revelation 21, 9 through 11, it says one of the seven angels who had who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God, and all its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. It's just, it's hard for me to imagine. I, I look at me, I, I, I look at us. I mean, look at us. We're just so ordinary. We're less than ordinary. We're just kind of this ragtag group of people. But how's God going to see us? How's He going to look at His bride? One of my greatest joys is to perform weddings. And probably my favorite moment in the wedding, which was a favorite moment in my wedding as well, is when I saw my bride standing back there. And you get these crazy thoughts in your mind. You're just like, you got to be kidding me. That beautiful woman right there, she loves me. I get to spend the rest of my life with her. That's the picture. That's how God sees his bride. Us coming down the aisle, God just saying, Yes, I love you, my treasured possession. And so then the question becomes, well, how is it then that God can love us so much? How is it that we're even so beautiful to him that he desires us that much? For one reason. Because of the one who prepares us. Every time Jesus is mentioned in these chapters... He's referred to as what? The Lamb. Why not Christ the King? Why not Jesus, the Lord of Lords? Why Lamb? Because Lamb reminds us of why we are so beautiful to God. We're beautiful. He loves us like the apple of his eye. He loves us the way a loving husband loves a bride coming down the aisle. 
can I show you just one more cool thing in this text? And you say, no, I don't want to see that. Well, too bad. <laughs> in uh, chapter, or verse 2 and 14 of chapter 22, there's the tree of life. And there are two words for tree in the New Testament as there are two words for tree in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's this one word used for tree every single time except for one other time. And that one other time, it's that time where it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, takes the Greek words, two Greek words for those words, tr uh, words for tree, and every time it translates tree, it uses the word dendron. Except for that one time. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a zulon. The only time Zulan is used then in the New Testament is right here. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. The tree of life is the cross. And it's the cross that provides healing to the nations. And I don't know what that's going to mean in in this new city, I don't know, maybe we're still going to break our arms, or maybe we're still going to get sick. I know there's not going to be any crying, mourning, or pain, or any of that, but we're still going to have bodies, we're still going to go out and play golf, we're still going to produce things, and invent things, and make things happen, it's going to be awesome. But whatever the fact is, is this, we will still need Christ, and Christ and his cross will still be our healing. Has he healed you? Has he washed you? Has he made you beautiful and lovely like this bride coming to meet her husband? What does all this mean? Well, to plug this thing into our series, and now I'm kind of taking it to the series end. What does Jesus say about the city of God? Is it just future? No, it's right now. Right now, we are to be this city, the new Jerusalem to the world. This is our mission. To be what we just read. To be the very, the, the very hope that we have. It, we, we need to be that right now. And, and here's what it means. It means our mission right now is that we are to be the face of God to our world. And we are to wipe away tears. And just look at our world right now. It's so broken. It's so messed up. There's so many people who are hurt. There's so much mourning. There's so much crying. There's so many tears. 
And we have so much to offer. And as a city of God right now, God wants to partner with us so that we can be his face to wipe away tears. Are you close enough to broken people to see tears? Are you God's face right now to people in pain? And are you wiping tears from people's faces? And here's why we can do this. Our world can't. Our world doesn't have the goods. And this is why the early Christians could move into suffering and they could move into plagues and they could move into places where there were earthquakes and and while the rest of the world ran, they could move in because we have this hope. We have this awesome hope of the new Jerusalem which gives us the capacity to suffer. And we can mourn with those who mourn. We can weep with those who weep. And we can go into the ditch and into the trenches and be the city of God. I mean, Paul says it in Romans. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I had a friend this week. He called me. A friend of mine from Wheaton College. So, born-again Christian. For Christ and his kingdom was the motto on the big old banner. I'm not judging him. Love the guy. But he's had a $500,000 a year salary. I know this because every year I get together with a bunch of my Wheaton friends and a lot of times we go around, how much do you make? How much do you make? How much do you make? And they get to the pastor and it's just like, can we change the subject now? He's losing his job. He's losing his million-dollar house. He has a one-year-old baby and a second one on the way, and he's in panic mode. What are we living for? You see, the hope of this city, I'm not trying to make light of his situation, but the hope of the city which is to come allows us to face anything today. Anything. And so let me end this whole series with what I think is a pretty important question. To what city do you belong? Really? You belong to the great harlot, Babylon? Or do you belong to Christ's beautiful, glorious bride, the new Jerusalem? And what city is it that you're seeking right now? What city is it that has your heart? What city is it that defines your life, your past, your present, and your future? You know the one characteristic that describes the people who belong to the city of God? They're thirsty. It's those who hunger and thirst for God. 
who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness with all that they got. It's not for the proud. It's not for the self-sufficient. It's not for the self-righteous. It's for sinners who know their need. It's for the weak who know their need. Because to belong in this city, all you need is need. And all you and I can offer God at the end of the day is need. I need you. I love you. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty. Are you thirsty tonight for God and for his kingdom? And are you longing? Are you longing to see his face? Hebrews 11.10 says, For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Let's seek this city with everything we have. Let's be this city with everything we have for Christ and his glory. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this amazing hope. And God, it it really is beyond even what we can imagine, even with the help, Lord, of your awesome word. And we just thank you, God, for your word, that we can put our hope in this, and that you paint such an awesome picture for us to just root our lives in this, to be defined by it, to give our heart to it. And God, that we don't have to be anything other than thirsty people, people who hunger and thirst for the living God. And so, God, I just pray that that's all there would be in this room is need. Just need, Lord, need and hunger for you.